the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Quote.com slash commercial. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
to this very moment, we are hungry, thirsty, wearing rags, abused, and homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are insulted, we respond with a blessing. When we are harassed, we put up with it. When our reputation is attacked, we are encouraging. We have become the scum of the earth, the waste that runs off everything up to the present time. I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed, but to warn you, since you are my loved children, you may have 10,000 mentors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. I gave birth to you in Christ Jesus through the gospel, so I encourage you to follow my example. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He's my loved and trusted child in the Lord. He'll remind you about my way of life in Christ Jesus. He'll teach the same way as I teach everywhere in every church. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I share this passage from 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. And I love this passage because it shows the real family of God that is created through the gospel. The Apostle Paul didn't think of these Corinthians as merely converts or believers, but he felt himself to really be a father to them, and he loved them as his own children. Now we've been sharing from Jackie Pullinger's book, Chasing the Dragon. Pullinger has been in Hong Kong now for over 50 years. She's a missionary from England. And this passage of the book we're going to read today will explain, it will narrate how she first began to create homes for the new converts. And you'll see that she felt and feels very much the way the Apostle Paul felt. She really felt these converted gangsters and addicts to be her own children. She felt herself to be a mother to them. And it wasn't an inconvenience to her to live with them and to grow them up and to teach them how to be Christians and to teach them how to be adults. Many of these converts were only 13, 14, 15 years old and had never had a real parent in their life. Perhaps their parent was in prison. Perhaps they didn't know who their father was. So these converts very much needed a family. And we'll see that she found the promise in the Gospel of Mark for this family and that God answered that prayer for her. Now again, you're listening to Pilgrim's Progress and the book we're sharing from is called Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. And yesterday we shared she rented a room just outside the walled city that was about 900 square feet. And this is huge compared to where most people were able to live. But it was falling apart. So her English roommate, Mary, cried when she first saw the place. But Jackie Pullinger was very excited about it. She saw its potential. So I'll begin reading. She writes, I found my flat 
when inquiring at a street stall just outside the walled city whether there were any apartments available in the vicinity. A very well-dressed lady who was shopping there took me straight away to this derelict place. By Chinese standards, it was enormous, having more than 900 square feet inside, and stairs leading up to a roof, which had been partly covered with corrugated iron to make an extra room. She offered it to me at a very reasonable rent, saying that she had kept it vacant for a year, waiting for Christians to occupy it. She herself was a Buddhist. I was so excited when I saw it that I could only see the possibilities. Mary, being more pragmatic, could only see its drawbacks. She may have been right, for it needed an incredible amount of work to make it habitable. But remember, these boys were living in opium dens. They were paying every month for the right to sleep on a certain part of the street. So, to them, this would have been wonderful. And it was an environment, she was trying to create an environment that was not evil, so that these new converts could grow up in a loving, disciplined Christian environment where they would not be surrounded by all of the vice that they had previously actually been involved in promoting, things like selling drugs, running prostitutes. She recognized that if they were going to stand in Jesus, they needed to be removed from that evil environment. So the Walled City Boys helped in the renovation of this property by lending their skills and non-skills. It is doubtful if this method was really cheaper than employing professionals as they were keen on soft drinks and meal breaks in exchange for their services. On the principle that work is done more quickly if one is on the spot, Mary and I moved in amongst a heap of rubble, no lights, and a dubious water system, camping in one room while partitions came down and ceilings went up around us. Our greatest asset was the roof garden. Once we had exchanged the heaps of old bicycle frames and bedsteads for begonias, cacti, and climbing vines, these were carefully arranged so that we would not be overlooked by the Mahjong school opposite us, which catered to off-duty policemen who were very amused to see us sunbathing. I needed to decide whether to share my house with girls or boys, since so many of each were homeless. If I took boys into my home, which I thought rather unsuitable in my single state, it would necessarily rule out the girls, as I could not mix them. But the decision was made for me when Ah Ping and Ah Kung had to leave the temporary home I had found for them, and had nowhere else to go except back into the walled city, or Lung Kong Road. Our new family was then joined by Joseph, the original youth club president. Winston left his opium dem for us, and we arranged for Ah Ming to live with friends. We were forming a Christian community, and helping the boys to grow up in Christ. I felt how nice and neat it was, with this one here and that one there. However, I still had much to learn. I did far too many jobs. I cooked for the boys, fed them, clothed them, cleaned the house, and got them to work or school. I was also opening the Walled City Youth Club room nearly every evening and visiting vice dens and brothels whenever there was a contact. 
When at last I got to bed, I was frequently awakened by drug addicts ringing on the doorbell, wanting to hear about Jesus. Prostitutes rang me from police station. Detectives appeared on the doorstep seeking information, and prison or probation officers referred cases to me, as ours was one of the very few places in Hong Kong that housed delinquent boys. I did not fancy the idea of meeting a policeman in my nightgown, so from that time I adopted the habit of sleeping in my clothes. I was always ready to dash out of the house in an emergency. One such event occurred when a young man phoned me at 4 a.m. to say that he had had an argument with his wife and that she had fallen out of the top bunk in their resettlement room. He'd run away in panic, but asked if I would please go to his home and check to see if she were dead or not. Our flat eventually became mixed after all. Another night, there was a knock on the door, and when I opened it, there stood a little teenage girl holding a baby on one arm and an enormous suitcase on the other. Behind her crouched her younger brother and two little sisters. Miss Poon, she whispered, we've come to live with you. I had first come to know these children some three years previously and had many dealings with them since. Their addicted father had not only harmed himself, but had also caused his family dreadful suffering. The history of the Chung family was appalling. They all lived on a double bed. There was no space for anything else in the room, since it was only the roof of someone else's shack and had to be reached by a wooden staircase. Their own roof was a plastic tarp that sagged in the middle when it rained. Every now and again, they prodded it with a pole and emptied the rain into buckets to prevent it from flooding their little room. The children learned to walk on this bed. They slept on it, cooked on it, played, and did their homework on it. All five of them were painfully shy, and when I went to visit the family, they turned to the wall, pretending that they were not there. There was nowhere else to hide. I never saw the family eat anything except white rice, which they boiled to a porridge known as kanji. This was because their miserable father spent all his earnings on heroin and never gave his family any support at all. The only income came from Mrs. Chung, a tiny little 30-year-old who carried water buckets for a living. She brought these buckets from the water pumps outside the walled city, carried them down narrow streets on a pole, and then upstairs to people's houses. She received five cents each time for this service, but lost even that income after she got rheumatism in her legs and could no longer walk with the heavy buckets. Although she was expecting a sixth child to be born into her foodless slum, Mrs. Chung was always smiling. She had asked to receive Jesus into her heart, and she, I, and some of the Christian boys from the youth club often prayed together, which brought her great joy. We used to take her dried bacon, salted fish, and oil, so that the family had more nourishment to put on the rice. Had we given her money, her husband, who came back occasionally, would have stolen it for his heroin. We took the children, who were aged from 6 to 11, toys for Christmas, and we paid their school fees, even when the children had to work in factories to keep buying the rice. I referred this case to the Social Welfare Department, asking for compassionate resettlement and some kind of financial aid, 
as I could not afford the money to support them all indefinitely. The officials in the inquiry office were unhelpful. Mrs. Chung could not read, so she did not even know which floor to go to. And because they had told her to fill in forms because she could see a social worker, she had not even reached the queue that began the process of receiving help. The next time she went, I went with her and sat all day waiting to see the caseworker. I suggested that she classify herself as separated, as Mr. Chung rarely came home and did not contribute to the family income anyway. I was shown out brusquely while Mrs. Chung was interviewed. When I visited the family again, this poor little lady told me that she had gone back to the office to sign for aid and that a letter would be coming. Four months later, there was still no letter, although she remained optimistic that it would come. Eventually, I checked with the welfare department, who looked up the family's files. I was told, this family does not qualify for aid. If that family doesn't qualify for aid, then I'm sure no one does, I replied. I've never seen anyone so poor, and they have a newborn baby. Mrs. Chung had had to walk back home from the clinic on the day she gave birth to her sixth child. Would you please explain your assessment? I asked. Apparently, the welfare authorities had asked Mrs. Chung's husband to go to the office to provide a statement about his income. He told them, I earn 600 Hong Kong dollars a month, out of which I give my wife $400. This was a complete lie, but it would be great loss of face for a Chinese man to admit that he could not support his family. The misinformation was carefully written down, and then the welfare officer asked Mrs. Chung to sign her husband's statement. She did not know what it said, because she couldn't read. She thought she was signing to receive help, so she made her mark. "'Couldn't you see that he was on drugs?' I said to the officer. "'His word can't be trusted.' I was so upset that I was aggressive. "'He told us he was completely drug-free.' They replied defensively. Don't you know what an addict looks like? That's as plain an example as I've ever seen. He has heroin staring out of his eyes. The officials who had learned their procedures out of books labeled me as a troublemaker, but they reversed the decision, and Mrs. Chung received some financial help at last. I just want to stop here for a moment. This same problem happens today in the United States. The problem I'm referring to is that there are social welfare or social aid programs and the poor are very, very disadvantaged when it comes to even taking advantage of these programs that are available. I'll give you one example. There's one man who I'm trying to help who has a, an infected tooth that probably needs to be pulled. He went to the free medical clinic. They told him it, it needed to be extracted and referred him to a charity doctor, who a charity dentist, who would be able to see him in six months. He did not receive an x-ray. So he's been having horrible pain in this tooth to the point that he almost tried pulling it out himself with a pair of pliers. He doesn't know if it's gone septic or not. If it has, that's life-threatening. So I talked to my cousin, who's a dentist, and he said, well, I need, I would really like to see an x-ray 
to tell whether this tooth should be extracted or not. And I had reached out to this cousin and said that we were willing to bring this man in, pay for his treatment, but that we were concerned that it could become a life-threatening infection if it were left untreated. So I go back to the man and he makes another trip to the free medical clinic and asks for an x-ray. And they've now said, okay, we'll come back in one week and we'll give you an x-ray. This is the kind of poor care that the poor are getting. And it's easy for us to have credit cards or wealthy backgrounds or even just middle class backgrounds to say, well, if that happened to me, I would just go to a dentist, I'd put it on credit and figure out how to pay it later. Well, that's not necessarily the most responsible decision, but that is an option you have that many people do not honestly have that option. They don't have a credit card. They don't even have bank accounts. They're, if they have a vehicle, it's difficult to get around. People take one look at them and they have all this prejudice and don't give them the same kind of treatment or care that they would give you if you were asking for the exact same thing in the exact same way. And so we see the importance, as Jackie had to do in this story, she actually went to the office with this woman, helped her fill out the paperwork, when the letter didn't come, she followed up with them, she confronted the police, and that was how they were finally able to get help. Everything they were doing was legal and should have been happening, but without that intervention of someone who cared, this family would have continued to eat nothing except boiled white rice. So I would just encourage you, it's easy for us to say to a person who comes to us and, you know, they don't have any food for the week, or they are living in their car and we're like, oh, well, you should do this and this. And if you would just do this and this, then you would be out of your situation. Well, perhaps that's true, but perhaps it's not true. And they may just need you to actually do it with them, to walk through it with them. I just want to say one more thing on this point. We, if we've grown up, say I grew up in a family that really emphasized education. And so when I was in first grade, my mom went to the school and pushed for them to give me the gifted test so I could be admitted to the gifted program. And so pretty much my whole life, I was always in gifted. I was in advanced, advanced classes, honors classes. And when you're in that group, you have access to better academic advisors. You get into high school and they teach you how to go through a, how to write a college application essay. How you should even fill out the college application. Do you do it on the internet? Do you do it by mail? What should you put on the application? Sometimes they'll even sit down with you and review it. We learn things like how we should write emails to our professors. We learn things like how we should communicate on the telephone when we have a need. And we just kind of take for granted that everybody knows this, but that's not true. That's just how we happen to grow up in an environment where people cared about us and taught us these things. And so to us, it's natural. But to many people who did not grow up in that environment, it is not natural for them. They may have even been told things. I know one woman who was told this growing up, her friend, her, an adult in her life said, don't worry about your credit because you'll never have good credit. That was the extent of her education about building credit. 
Now you contrast that with my mom who said, take out a credit card, make one purchase, and pay it in full at the end of the month. She said, never put anything on your credit card if you don't have the money in the account to pay for it, and always make your payment in full and on time. Now we're talking just like one minute of advice, right? You think, well, what impact would that have? Well, it has a huge impact because that's all you've been taught on the subject. And then you end up in dramatically different financial situations based on which way you choose to live. Will I only buy things if I have my money in the account? Or will I not worry about my credit because I'll never have good credit anyway? So I say all this to just encourage you to actually reach out and try to help the people around you who need help. And I have yet to find one person in need who I approached who wasn't extremely grateful that I approached them. Praise the Lord. So we continue the story of how these children eventually came to live with Jackie Pullinger, Miss Poon, in this family, in this home. So after they, after Miss Pullinger had gotten the family financial relief, she says, We then helped the family to move out of the walled city. My walled city boys hired a lorry, and we moved the double bed, only to find barrels and barrels of clothes stored underneath. The family had previously been in contact with another welfare organization that had donated a dozen barrels of clothing sent from overseas for the refugees. The barrels were full of articles such as soiled, sequined evening dresses, but Mrs. Chung had been so keen to have possessions that she would not throw anything away. We bought 150 hangers and strung them up in the family's new room, which was otherwise completely bare. Then we began the unpacking. The barrels were crawling with cockroaches. Whole nests of them had been living there for years and emerged to take up quarters in the new home. When only half the barrels had been unpacked, each hanger had about three gray, crawling, moldy items on it. There were six fat English ladies' winter coats, which had rotted and stank. There were scores of unsuitable and unwearable garments, so I put great heaps of them by the trash can around the corner of the building. The next day I came back to find that the eldest girl, Ah Ling, had gone and fetched them all back. They were the only security she had. About the time we moved into the Lung Kong flat, Mrs. Chung told me with simple acceptance that she had been ordered to go out and get a job, as the government could not support drug addicts' wives indefinitely. She told them she was not well, but they refused further help. Two weeks after hearing this decree, she died. She had had a cough for a long time, and although it was difficult for her to get to a doctor, she had visited a clinic several times. A bottle of medicine was all that had been given to her. I felt partly to blame for her death. I had known that she had been coughing, but I'd never taken the trouble to accompany her to the doctor, and she'd not had her tuber tuberculosis diagnosed. She had sought help from professionals. We had all kept her waiting, and she had died a death that might have been prevented. After the funeral, I continued to visit and support the children, who were now being exploited by their father. 
He took the 13-year-old daughter away from school and sent her to work in a factory. For a pitiful wage of 100 Hong Kong dollars a month, she sewed collars on dresses. She had to give her father all the money. When the youth club went on outings, we would take all the children with us, which was when they suggested coming to live in my house. I flatly refused this as a possibility and told them that under the law they belonged to their father. One month after my refusal, they packed all their belongings and ran away from home, to me. They were a pathetic sight huddled in my doorway. They had complete trust that I would take them in. It did not seem very suitable. My house was already sleeping boys on the floor. But I had no option when I discovered that Ah Ling was being molested by her father. She showed me the bruises on her legs. So I took her to the hospital and then allocated bunks for the little ones. They were so withdrawn that it was a long time before any of them would speak to me. However, I soon discovered that our boys, themselves rejected, were really good with the children and loved playing with the baby. So the family in our house grew and was further augmented by constant appearances from Mrs. Chan, whom I'd come to know some months earlier through her son, Pin Kwong. He was a vicious addict of 19 who had no intention of changing his ways and who collected money by holding up victims at knife point in the public toilet. I often asked him about his widowed mother, but he refused to allow me to visit her, saying, She is an old idol worshipper. She won't want to hear from a Christian. When Ping Kwong was arrested and put in prison for the fifth time, I sought out his mother and found her lying on a little bed in her walled city room. She had decided to die because her son had been arrested yet once more. She had no husband or family. Her son, Ping Kwong, was all her life. Chinese women are very proud of their sons, but Pin Kwong was rotten and took away any money she ever had, so she had no more will to live. He had not wanted me to visit her for fear that I would discover that he had been exploiting her for the little amount she could collect selling vegetable herbs in the market. When we found her, she had already lain there for some days without eating and was very weak. The boys went out and bought chicken essence and bones to boil for soup, and we set about restoring the elderly lady. While we fed her, we told her about the father, who had given her his most precious possession, his only son, because he loved her. Mrs. Chan was a simple woman who had never been to school. She'd never heard of Christ before and could not follow long sentences. We laid our hands on her and prayed out loud, asking God to teach her in a way she could comprehend. After the prayer, she looked up, grinning from ear to ear, saying that when we prayed, she had been healed of sickness of the lungs and could breathe clearly for the first time in years. Her illness never returned. That night, she dreamed that a man in a long white robe came to her and, holding out his arms, asked her to come to him and be baptized. Since that time, she was quite radiant, and when I moved into Lung Kong Road, she was delighted. We gave her a key to the new home, and she pottered in and out, happily cleaning everything in sight, cooking meals, and introducing all her local market vendor friends, who would sell us provisions cheaply. 
bestowing on me a signal of honor, she became my kaima, and her and I her kanyu, meaning godmother and goddaughter. She adored her new family and bossily clucked around us all. Because she could not read a word, I had the boys teach her Bible verses. It took her a week to learn. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. This had to be near to her heart, as she had formed a passion for the toaster and now downed marmalade sandwiches in a most un-Chinese manner. Praise the Lord. I just want to stop here and, and say this is a wonderful example of what revival looks like and of God creating a real family out of these rejected, unloved, unlovable people who God loved and building them into a family when none of them had even had families before and they're a loving, kind family for each other. And I just so long to see this happen here in the United States. Ever since I've been converted, I've wanted, one of my greatest desires has been to live with new converts. I almost did this. I almost bought a fixer-upper and had homeless people come live with me and minister to them. I won't go into all the details with that, but it fell through. But that is something I would very much like to do. The handful of people who I've brought to Jesus, I praise God because they're still Christians. But it hurts me. I pray for them because I see them kind of wandering. And I know that if I had been able, if I'd been in a position where I could have had these people live with me, I mean, one of them is actually an orphan. Another grew up almost as an orphan. These people needed love and discipline, and I was unfortunately not in a position where I could do that, though I wanted to. So that is something that I very much do pray for and want, and I've continually asked Jesus that he would give me a real spiritual family. He said that if we left our houses or lands, if we left our brothers or sisters for his sake, that he would give us a hundredfold in this life. And then in the life to come, we would have eternal life. That's very close to my heart. Pullinger continues, Three years earlier than this, when Dora first started to help me in the walled city, she had come one evening to translate for a Bible study. It was one of those times when only one of the boys turned up. The others had forgotten completely. I was feeling angry that I had used up an unreasonable amount of time collecting and chasing them up for meetings. It was one of the very rare occasions when I really wished to be back in England, where Christians at least knew what day of the week it was. I did not voice these thoughts, but as we prayed, God gave me a message in tongues to the one boy present. Dora had an interpretation of the message. No one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother or father, or children or lands for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as many in this life of houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
I had heard these words before, but it was not until Dora's interpretation that I really listened. Hurriedly, I looked up the verses in St. Mark's Gospel to find that it did say we would receive in this life a hundred times as much as we had left. I had only ever remembered the eternal life part, and that was for after death. So that evening I claimed the promise, God, I'd like a hundred homes, a hundred brothers and sisters, and a hundred mothers and children too. Now if you visit her website, saintstephensociety.com, you will find that over the years they have actually had 270 homes. They still have a number of homes, it just keeps growing. Now in the flat in Lung Kong, I counted up and found that among the walled city boys and students, I had at least 100 Christian brothers and sisters. I was living in my sixth home, with many others open to me, and the children, that is the converts, were adding up. Because I had been a bit short on the mothers, Mrs. Chan appeared too. She joined a lovely church full of old ladies outside the walled city, and looked after the potential mothers I sent her. More mothers and God came along. One day I was visited by a young man assisting his granny from a nearby resettlement block. She looked very frail and her head was bandaged, partially concealing an ugly gash on her temple. I want to be baptized, she squeaked. I was immediately suspicious. It means nothing to be baptized if you've not believed in Jesus. If you would like to hear about him, I'll be glad to tell you, but if it's the bit of paper you require, I cannot help you. We do not give certificates in our church. There are many others that do, and I'm sure they will be glad to help. It turned out that having fallen down and cracked her head, this granny was afraid to die without a burial spot. There was a great shortage of these in Hong Kong, and a thriving black market demanded outrageous sums. However, as a member of a Christian church, she could get a reasonable piece of consecrated real estate, and this is what the old lady was after. I took her to Mrs. Chan, who became friends with her and led her to Christ. The old granny had a true conversion, was baptized, and died six months later with a place reserved in heaven. This is the same Mrs. Chan it took her a week to learn the Bible verse where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And yet she leads this other old woman to Jesus. And what we've seen as we've gone through this story is that many of these converts could not read, so they couldn't read the Bible. They had what they'd been taught by other Christians, but primarily they had their experience of having been saved by the power of God of having met Jesus personally, he would appear to them in dreams, in visions, and of having received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so they had the spiritual gifts, they could pray and speak in tongues, they could interpret tongues, they could prophesy, they had visions. And the church was growing and thriving. And I say this because I don't mean to in any way minimize the Bible. But the Christian faith is not primarily about just learning about the Bible. It's about receiving the Spirit of Christ, truly meeting Jesus, 
and being changed by Jesus, knowing the knowing personally that Jesus has loved you, touched you, known you, forgiven you, changed you, given you a new life. And then because you've been touched in that way, going out and reaching others with Jesus, loving them, sharing Jesus with them, sacrificing for them, praying with them. That's what this is about. The commandments of the gospel are to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love each other as ourself. Those are the commands of the gospel. That's what God intends to produce in us through the gospel. He's not trying to produce, okay, I agree to go to church one to two times per week, to read my Bible on a yearly reading schedule, and to add some street evangelism maybe once a month. I have to tell you, I would be desperately bored as a Christian if my Christian experience consisted in waking up in the morning, reading out of a prayer book, reading a couple devotional materials, and then just going about a normal life. That would be awful. The juice in the Christian life comes as throughout the day. I go to the gym, and I meet a man there who says, I've never spoken to him before. He says, do you believe God answers prayer? I say, absolutely. I live by prayer. I explain to him how this radio broadcast is paid every month by Jesus as he moves in your hearts. I say, does God answer your prayers? He says, no. I say, well, do you pray for anything specific? He says, no, I don't, usually. He said, there's one thing I pray for that's specific. I said, well, you have to pray for something specific for God to answer it. And then I find out what he needs prayer for, and I pray with him on the spot. He's sitting on the bench, about to bench press, and I just t hold his shoulder and I pray with him. And he, the look on his face is just like shock and amazement, because evidently, I mean, he's a regular church attender. He goes to a Baptist church down in Manassas, but evidently he's not used to people just praying with him. So we pray together, and then he says, you are a heaven-sent angel. I say, I pray so. I mean, I'm not in my mind thinking that, but I mean, I praise God because when I was on the bench press 10 minutes before he got there, I was praying for God to open a door of witness. And he did. And that's pretty much what my life is like. And so, you know, I'm talking to someone and they're telling me some difficulty they're having, and I just say, let's pray about it. You just pray about it right then. Yes, I read the scriptures. Yes, I'm a faithful church goer. But that's not that's not the juice or the vitality or the life of the Christian. It's that continual walking in the Holy Spirit of as you go around your life praying for the Lord to open doors, asking him Lord, send me someone who you want to convert today. That's become my new prayer. I've only prayed that one once so far, and I'm still waiting to see it. But I'm believing God is going to do that. I'm asking him to send me a man or a woman or a child who will be converted when I speak to them. Will you do that? 
will you joyfully take that position in the prayer closet and keep asking Jesus and keep reaching out until it happens? He wants to give it to us. It says it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Praise God. Jackie Pullinger continues, I had no idea it would be so much hard work caring for the boys in my house. All the books I had ever read about criminals becoming Christians stopped short at their conversion, giving a strong impression that they lived happily ever after. Mine was a basic mistake. I thought that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new man, whereas the meaning of the text is a new creation. Although the gangsters had become Christians, they were like newborn babies and had a lot to learn. In other words, when someone is in Christ, they're a new creation, but they're not mature yet. They're like babies, and they need to grow up. You'll recall that Paul spent two years in Ephesus preaching day and night to the Ephesians. They were converted, and then he spent two years with them, growing them up. Well, that's essentially what Pullinger's done. Although the gangsters had become Christians, they were like newborn babies and had a lot to learn. Their ignorance of normal living was appalling. Some of them, such as Mao Jai, which means little cat, who had been in the drug den when Johnny was arrested, had lived on the streets since they were five years old. Mao Jai had not been allowed to sleep at home because his father had two wives and the second one, little mother, was out of favor, so her children were banned from the home. They had no normal childhood. Deprived of this, they grew up quickly in craft and cunning. Since they were used to being up all night, they could not understand why they should shut their eyes at twelve, midnight. They got up when they awoke, and if they did not wake up in the morning, then that was that. If they did not feel like going to work, they did not go. They associated any rules I made with prison, which was the only other kind of authority they had known, and were careless in keeping those rules. In Lung Kong Road, boys came and went. I sometimes had the suspicion that they were running me, rather than vice versa, but I did not want to admit it. For example, Ah Hung came to us on release from prison, sent by the authorities and supposedly drug-free. Drug it turned out that he took heroin the very day he was released, and he must have continued to take it throughout his stay with us. It was therefore not surprising that he soon lost his job as a skilled jade craftsman and left our flat. One day, he turned up high on heroin to confess to having taken part in a recent robbery in which a policeman had been wounded. We persuaded him to give himself up, but ten minutes later he ran away. Since he had spoken of a gun, I rang the police and had six carloads of detectives screeching through the harbor tunnel and up to the flat waving revolvers, as they thought he was still there. Embarrassed, we tried to smile at our neighbors crowding around, as if nothing unusual were happening. They all thought us extremely unfriendly not to share the details. A series of detectives greedily ate our meals and kept a watch on the house for 24 hours. One pair skipped half of their night shift to find a better class of food, leaving us a night spot telephone number where they might be reached in case of further developments. But it all turned out to be a hoax, 
Ah Hung appeared a day later to own up that he had not taken part in the crime. I did not believe him, so I took him off to the police to confess. This was the best thing that could have happened to Ah Hung because, according to information that the police re later received, there was no way he could have been party to this robbery. He was jeered at for making up such a story under the influence of drink and heroin, but it was exactly what was needed to force his drug taking into the open and bring him to the point of truly seeking help. The Walled City boys clearly needed discipline, and I was quite unable to give enough. Part of my difficulty was that I had reached the boys through being their friend and equal, and it was hard to make the transition into being their teacher or pastor. I had become so involved with them that I was not firm enough, so they came in at all hours of the night and morning, left to me to do all the drudgery of the housework, and were not growing up as I hoped. Since I was out most of the night myself, it was difficult to check up on what they were doing. I began to pray that God would send someone else to look after the house so that I would be free to get back on the streets. To ease the pressure on me, I asked two Chinese young Christian men to join us and help run the house to free me for other work. But this was not a success. They wanted a salary that I could not promise. They wanted to be addressed as teacher, and they felt that any kind of manual work was beneath them since they were church workers. When I rose in the morning, I asked them if they had woken up the other boys and prepared the breakfast. They replied that they were too busy having their quiet times, that is, times for praying and reading the Bible. Their idea of the teaching role was to hold a Bible study with the boys and preach at them for one and a half hours. I discovered that this was how they had been taught to conduct Christian work. Having meetings, having a title, and preaching was as much as they understood. They had not learned about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. To help both myself and the boys, I often took them to the Willenses' meetings, which they loved. The meetings were always translated into Chinese so that they could fully join in, and meet Christians from other countries and backgrounds. Because of this, many people prayed for us, but sadly no one wanted to be further involved. One day, Jean Willens firmly spoke to me, If you have to work with these boys, all right, Jackie, but you don't have to live with them. At least have somewhere you can escape from them and regain your strength and peace. I did not understand this attitude. In fact, I could not understand why the whole world did not want to work in the walled city. If someone passing through Hong Kong said he was praying about finding work, I always thought, You don't have to pray any longer. Can't you see the walled city? There it is. I did not want to be anywhere else. Yet I felt defensive about my work, exhausted, but unable to escape the maternal obligations to my children. Despite the confusion in my disorderly home, I learned that God would often use very young believers to encourage me and the others. All those who became Christians received the power of the Spirit at the same time they believed, just as Winston and Amning had. We encouraged them to share spiritual gifts when meeting together, so they knew clearly that having these gifts was no cause for pride, but a way of helping one another. One night we were praying when one of those boys had a prophecy. He said that God had given him the words to speak. 
Go and pick the cabbages and quickly catch the bus. It sounded a startling message. My Cantonese still had some gaps, and it took a few minutes' search through a dictionary before I found the correct translation. The harvest is ready. Go out and work to gather it in. There and then we went into the streets and talked to the street sleepers around our alley. One man, impressed to see people of his own background changed and starting a new life, prayed with us and later came off drugs in our house. I've been sharing from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Jackie Pullinger is still ministering today in Hong Kong. You can learn more by visiting her website, saintstephensociety.com. I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. Please write to us. We're happy to receive letters, to receive offerings, tithes. You can write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia 22195. You can also visit our webpage nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com where you can listen to this message again, as well as past messages, contact us, or make a donation. Join us again tomorrow for another episode of Pilgrim's Progress. Thank you, and we love you. God bless you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.